0: Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. We left off on Monday with a book burning. A response to the Seven Sons of Sceva episode is shocking. The book burning. As we learned in the story of Simon the Magician, the term magician translates the Greek word magos, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, the term refers to the three kings or wise men from the east who visit Bethlehem at Jesus' birth. Magos could refer to malicious deceivers like Simon the Magician, but to ignorant minds, it could also apply to anyone learned in pre-Christian religion, philosophy, and literature. Sadly, Such a misapplied application occurs as late as AD 314 with the brutal murder of Hypatia, the brilliant mathematician and philosopher accused by Saint Cyril of Alexandria of magic and of beguiling young minds. Hypatia was head of the Neoplatonic school of Alexandria where she taught philosophy and astronomy. Among her many discoveries, Hypatia understood the elliptical orbits of the planets, confirmed 1,200 years later by Johannes Kepler. Although the Great Library of Celsus would not be built until AD 132, 75 years after the book burning, the new believers in Ephesus burned scrolls. As we noted on Monday, valued at 50,000 drachma, about $10 million. Tragically, priceless and irreplaceable Greek and Roman literature, no doubt, went up in smoke. And St. Paul was deeply troubled. And he leaves Ephesus shortly afterward. I put in now at Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Ephesus was a major hub of maritime trade in the Roman Empire. People traveled through it all the time. And like any tourist, When they got to Ephesus, they visited the Temple of Diana, one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world, and they bought souvenirs, silver statues of Artemis. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast, behind me on my bookshelf, I have about a 12-inch high silver statue of Artemis that I bought at Ephesus from the vendors that you encounter on the way out of the archaeological site. Oh... I was so pleased to get that a silver shrine of Artemis and I bargained with that vendor it was $250 and I got him down to $100. And When I turn and I look behind me at the silver statue of Artemis on my bookshelf the silver is beginning to peel off. It was just plaster underneath the vendor's always win. Well, they did in Paul's day too. But this disturbance about the way, Demetrius, a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business. So he called the craftsmen together, along with the workmen, in related trades. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. We have suckers come through here like Dr. Creasy all the time. Paid $100 for that statue that cost me less than a dollar. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the entire province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, and indeed the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Artemis, or Diana, was the patron goddess of Asia Minor. When we travel in the footsteps of Paul throughout Turkey, every archaeological site we go to had a temple to Artemis or Diana. Every one of them. She was the major goddess of Asia Minor. And now this Father Paul is saying, well, she's no goddess at all. She's being robbed of her divine majesty by this this man. But when they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. Now when we visit Ephesus, and we've been there again many times, the last place we visit is the great theater of Ephesus. As I noted, it seats 25,000 people. And I will have my group on the northern end and have them all together. There are other groups in the theater as well. And I read this story to them. And as I'm reading the story, I read verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious, and they all began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And I gesture to the, to the crowd, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And we get a chant going in the theater. Oh, it is so much fun. Other groups that are non-biblical groups look at us like we're, like we're out of our minds. But there we have it. The whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Paul, you go into that theater, you'll be torn to pieces. Those people are really angry with you. The assembly was in confusion. You know, like like any riot, some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. They just followed the crowd into the theater and they took up the chant. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He gestured for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And it went on for about two hours. Imagine! Now the city clerk finally quieted the crowd. And he said, Men of Ephesus, does not all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? The image of Artemis, of Diana, a marble statue, sat off the cardo, the main street, where today, and after 1 AD 132, the Library of Celsus stood, a beautiful marble statue of Artemis. Today, that very statue is in the Vatican Museums in Rome. When we go to the Vatican Museums, you'll see it as you first enter uh, the first quarter of the museum. It'll be displayed on the right-hand side under lights. Well, everybody knows that she is the guardian. of of Ephesus, of the city, and indeed of all of Asia Minor. And her image fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything stupid. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody... That's why we have courts, why we have laws, and why we have judges. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. And that brings up another really important note. And I've talked about this in earlier podcasts. Rome, the Roman Empire, particularly as Christians who encounter the Romans in Scripture, and we who watch sword and sandal movies. The Roman Empire is often portrayed as brutal and harsh, but the Roman Empire was an enormous blessing to all of humanity. My goodness, it lasted for a thousand years. The Roman Empire was much like the United States of America today, It was a collection of many different cultures, many different religions, all living together under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. Remember Paul? When he was arrested and about to be flogged, he said you'd flog a Roman citizen. That was in in Philippi. You'd flog a Roman citizen. You're a Roman citizen. I am. Huh. I paid a lot for my Roman citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. Paul, the rising star in Judaism. Paul, who becomes Saint Paul, I believe one of the church's greatest saints, was very proud to be a Roman citizen because Rome had laws. Within individual territories, individual jurisdictions, you would have local laws. The Jews, for example, in Jerusalem, they had their Jewish dietary laws, their their beliefs and customs. They were totally free to worship at their temple in Jerusalem, to worship their God. They were totally free to do that. You could worship any God you wanted to in the Roman Empire. But you had to pay due deference to the Roman gods and other people's gods. Let's be a little polite here. But Rome had laws. And here we are in Ephesus, a great riot going, people chanting for two hours. they have filled the theater, which seats 25,000 people. And finally, the city clerk quieted them down and said, if you have a grievance, that's why we have courts. That's why we have judges. Press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, We're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. You can protest, but you can't riot. In that case, we'd not be able to account for this commotion. There's no reason for it. So after he said this, he dismissed the assembly, and everybody quietly left. The riot was over. When the uproar ended... Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia, northern Greece. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. He finally arrived in Greece, the southern portion of Greece today, where he stayed for three months. So Paul leaves Ephesus. He moves sails to uh, Neapolis, where Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke set first foot first on the continent of Europe, up to Philippi, where Lydia lived. I imagine he stayed with Lydia for a while, ministering to the people in Philippi. Then made his way across westward to Thessaloniki or Thessalonica in the Bible, to Berea, and then finally down south to Athens and on to Corinth, but we read that he arrived in Greece and he stayed three months. We're not told where he stayed. I think he went past Corinth over to the western portion of of Greece. I think after that riot in Ephesus, after the book burning, Paul had some serious thinking to do. He revisits his friends in Macedonia, makes his way down to Athens and Corinth, and then he goes on retreat, if you will, to really think things through. He stayed three months, and because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So Paul would have gone back to Corinth to sail from Sancria on the way back home to Antioch. But he learned about a plot. He's accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Maria, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Notice, waited for us. So Paul was going to get on board ship again at Sancria and head back home. But he learned of a plot, a death plot. Well, imagine the scene. Paul learns if he gets on board that ship, he's not getting off that ship on dry land. He's going to be murdered and thrown overboard for fish bait. So I can imagine the plan. Paul getting on board the ship, knowing the plot is underfoot, and then when no one's looking, coming back down the gangplank and disappearing. Meanwhile, the assassins boarded the ship, and the ship sails off into the sea. Paul standing on shore waving goodbye. <laughs> well, now he, Sopater, son of Pyrus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus. Tychicus and Trophimus, they have to be twins. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. So Paul's going to travel north by foot, or perhaps sailing north, up to Berea, to Thessalonica, to Philippi. And in Philippi, Paul and company would have again stayed with Lydia, but Paul said to the others, you guys go on to Troas, Dr. Luke's home. Luke gave them the keys to the house. Go on to Troas. Luke and I are staying here for a little while. So that's what they do, Paul and Luke. The men went ahead and waited for us, Luke and Paul, at Troas. Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, after Passover. So I bet the others went on to Troas. Paul and Luke spent Passover with Lydia. And when Passover was over, we joined up with them at Troas and stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, at Troas. We all came together to break bread. Now Paul spoke to the people. And this is at Luke's house in Troas. He spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Have you ever been to a dinner party? Where It's a nice dinner. You have dessert. There's conversation at the table. And it goes on and on and on. And it's getting to be 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. It's pushing midnight. And the host is still talking. Paul kept talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Now seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who, sitting on the windowsill, I can imagine him parallel to the wall, sitting on the windowsill with his feet up on one side of the the window and his back against the other, and he was nodding off. His head would drop. (laughs) And it would drop again. And then, sinking into a deep sleep, as Paul talked on and on, when he finally was sound asleep, he fell out of the window. He fell to the ground from the third story. Boom! And everyone said, ah, oh, they saw him fall out of the window and they all ran downstairs. They thought he was dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Oh, oh, oh this is terrible. Don't, don't be alarmed, he said. I He he heard him breathing. His heart's still beating. He's still alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. Dusted off Eutychus. All back up they went. And then, after talking until daylight, Paul left. He left Troas. And the people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted that poor Eutychus was not dead. Oh, this is a great story. I love this. Hey, there we are at the end, Wednesday, and uh, end of the podcast. So again, keep me in your prayers if you would. I'll keep you in mine, and uh, I'll be back with you again on Friday. and We'll pick up right where we left off. Bye-bye now.